Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to episode 28 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I am so honored to have Mr. Ken Webster with me today. Ken is a leading researcher in circular economy, such a big part of our future to come. Ken was the head of innovation at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, a leading organization in our world's move towards a sustainable future. Ken is the author of The Circular Economy, A Wealth of Flows, and the book Sense and Sustainability. Ken is a director for the International Society for Circular Economy. Ken has and continues to play a large part in helping to create a better future for us all. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, my, my pleasure, Brad. Ken, what, what's your backstory? What significant moments in your life shaped who you've become and the work you do in sustainability? Well, I think this is, this is incredibly interesting because it's almost, it's just almost by chance uh, at one level. I was working at the University of Manchester on uh, economics education trying to get that more, uh, if you like, within the 14 to 16 age group. But I was um, contacted by the Worldwide Fund for Nature to say, well, can we do an element of this with environment in it? And of course, I'd always been interested in environment. And so over a period of time, did a great project with them. And then I was invited to uh, work with them on some other projects, mixing economics and uh, environment and, and social elements. And so I moved from the university just on a, a whim almost to work with them on some interesting projects. And as I went through this process of working with the Worldwide Fund for Nature, I became more and more dissatisfied with what sustainability was engaged in, uh, particularly for younger people. It looked like personal responsibility questions. It looked like be a good citizen. It looked like do little things. Well, my economics background had said, hang on, this is, this is just... This is like asking people the wrong question and not really being worried about what they reply, because it doesn't matter what they reply. It's not going to shift the, move the dial, as they say. So I got frustrated with that and went looking around for, for people who were looking in a more profound way. And I came across uh, Cradle to Cradle. I came across Natural Capitalism from Amory Lovins, J.T. Lyle with um, <coughs> Regenerative um, ag Architecture, Regenerative Systems. And Janine Benyus has work in biomimicry. And I thought, this is exciting. This is, uh, if you like, redesigning the industrial system. It's not just saying we've got a system and need to make it less bad. You know, do your bit, which sounded to me like just no a dead end. So I wrote this book, Sense and Sustainability, almost out of frustration in a way, because nobody was really working uh, to that extent with, with in education around these broader uh, economic and industrial ideas. And um, funnily enough, that caught the attention of Alan MacArthur, who had um, just given up being around the world sailing champion at the time, around this is around 2009. And uh, she was looking for something to get involved in. And she'd been uh, put in touch with me by somebody at the Nuffield Foundation. So it just died by chance, but I went to meet her 
in London. And she said, well, can you come down? This was on a Friday. Can you come down to my house on the Isle of Wight? And we kept talking. And so by Tuesday, I'd agreed to join the Ellen MacArthur's Foundation because what I was able to do was to bring a synthesis of ideas around um, redesigning industrial systems to have a positive cycle, which is the cradle-to-cradle -cradle thing or natural capitalism. And this is what she wanted to get involved in. And because I was able to, and I'd done through Sense and Sustainability, put this together in an understandable package, she then had a narrative that she could use with her tremendous energy and contacts and with the small team she had, which included people who had made their, their living in sales and high-level negotiation. So it became, I'm the backroom boy with the ideas. I synthesize things. And you had the tremendous energy of Ellen MacArthur and her team that were able to project it. And um, very quickly, uh, circular economy, which had been discussed for quite a while, particularly in China, and it originally come from, well, um, the 1990s in, in Germany and the UK, it suddenly became a thing that people were interested in, and, and it was deliberately pitched. I think this is the interesting thing, Brad. It wasn't just, oh, this is quite a nice idea. It was worked over very intensely in Alan MacArthur Foundation to make it have leverage. By that, I mean, we understood framing. We understood George Lakoff's work in framing. How do you position, you know, know your values and, uh, and set the agenda, you know, claim the debate. Um, so we, it was a very deliberate orchestration that way. So I sort of stumbled into these things, but I'd been working in an area that was obviously a good fit for the new Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And because of my educational background, trying to communicate things was, was one of the challenges I've always tried to meet. So that, that was the way I stumbled into it. What are five years? from, from So from 2009 to 2015, when the Paris Agreement was signed, that must just have been a wild five years. Yes. You see, there's not only the ideas as a narrative, plus the people to project it. You need two other things. And you needed, there was a, at, at the time, people didn't realize where it's coming from entirely, but there was a big spike in resource prices after 2008 into nine and beyond. So a lot of businesses were getting worried about their supply supply chains and, and how much risk they might be exposed to with very volatile uh, prices. We, we didn't know at the time, but a lot of this was driven by China. China was responding to the, uh, the, the crash in 2008 and getting really busy with infrastructure. So it was drawing in massive amount of resources and resource prices dipped down again when they turned off that credit tap, interestingly. So resource prices are not what they say on the tin they're a function often of financial engineering and different big financial flows in the world. But anyway, so you had this worry that people were, uh, or businesses were going to get into trouble. And at the same time, you had a Europe in, in the post-crash period desperately wanting jobs and growth, but wanting to do it in a way that began to reflect the, the needs that was already apparent because of climate change. So you have things coming together, but it's led by business. This is the interesting thing. It was put in there as an economic opportunity driven by innovation. It wasn't put in there like, oh, you've got a climate change, you ought to do something. See, that's entirely the, a different message. If we never went to CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility people, never, because they're not core business. 
This is about core business. It's not about being a good citizen. You can do all that as a business, fine. Lots of them do. But it's not that angle. The angle is if you use different business model, leverage digital opportunities, you could deliver better goods and services with far less environmental cost. And that's that the beauty of it. That's that difference between being eco-efficient, which is what was dominant at the time, and being eco-effective, which is picking up on this cradle-to-cradle idea that you have a nutrient economy. In other words, waste is food. You can continually cycle it. You're not creating problems. You're creating opportunities. So um, Bill McDonough often describes it as asking the question, what's next for your products, components, and material? What's the next life? It isn't an end of life. It's end of the first life. Yeah, keep cycling. So you've got... The, the, the climate thing increasing in uh, importance. You've got the supply side things around resources. You've got digital giving you opportunities to rethink business models. You've got a narrative, which was me partly. And you've got energy from some determined people who know how to deliver narratives. So you, yeah. you have to put all of those together if you're talking about the success of it. it it's all those together. Uh, so you, you, nobody ever just comes from nowhere and just does it. Uh, even yeah. in enterprise, they don't no, just no, do that. They're always building on something. And I can really see the power of your background in economics too, Ken. It, it allowed you to look at that and then look at the future of sustainability and really blend them together in a, a symbiotic path. Yeah, that was the aim. Um, you know, it's an ongoing job. You did well. You did well. Ken, do you mind for our listeners that don't yet properly understand cradle to cradle and circular economy. Do you mind just explaining yeah. them briefly and also why they are important going forward? What some of the things that are happening around that with the Paris Agreement and things like that? Yeah, uh, it's very simple, really. We've got a linear economy at the moment, take, make and dispose. We know that actually the biggest problem with that is the, the waste that's generated and what impacts that having. Uh, yes, there are resource questions, but they're not as high profile as the, the impact of, of, of waste. It's also true that we're entering an era where uh, we are, if you like, well, this population is going up, but a lot of societies have aging populations. They're not going to buy lots more stuff. There's a saturation point with lots of these. You know, it's overproduction. There's so much stuff around. You know, I thought oh, I, I really need a, an impact screwdriver to do this particular job at home. So I thought, well, I don't have one, and I live in a country. Uh, how am I going to get one? You know, I can't just go to the shop and get one. So I just I get one via Amazon. It arrives the next day. It costs eight pounds. You know, a whole metal impact driver with bits and everything. Yeah. So that's like throwaway level. That's two coffees and a, and a biscuit in a cafe. And I've got an impact driver, which if I manage to mislay... You know, it's, it's that stupid with stuff. Lots of stuff is not. Uh, dur- it might be durable, but it's got no, you know, you might use it for 20 minutes in its lifetime. Apparently that's true with drills, you know, for putting things, holes in the wall and stuff. They have a lifetime use of between 20 minutes and half an hour for the average person. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what are we talking about here? I know. So you have overproduction, uh, people in the OECD countries, particularly an aging population, they don't buy as much stuff. So why are we having this throughput economy, which demands that you replace your stuff every couple of years? 
which demands, you know, because they're making things at such scale that they have to try and push you to have another one or change the model slightly or think of some weird variation on it. I got one of those little, I don't know if you've seen them, little mini drones for kids or for yeah. pets to play with. It's it's beautiful little thing. It's got sensors in it and it floats around. You know, it's, it's almost autonomous. You don't have a controller. It's just fun. But I was thinking, what on earth could you do with this? It's got sensors in it. It's got a motor. But the, the actual eco-efficiency of it is huge because they've used very few materials. But how on earth would you recover those materials to make sense of a, a circular economy, one where materials continue in a cycle? Much of it is just ABS plastic. So we've got huge problems that we have a dis, uh, production system that's designed to make very cheap stuff, cheap inverted commas, and doesn't do the real environmental cost, which is almost you know plastic toys for the world. As somebody said to me today, let's imagine prosperity as some people got more plastic toys and were able to go to a fast food restaurant. It doesn't sound like a very satisfying idea of increased prosperity. No, but it's you know, you're not really going to hang your future on plastic toys and a, a drone the cat can play with <laughs> you know so this the tank making econ tank making dispose economy is in real it's in real trouble for a number of reasons uh, including lack of demand you know too much production uh, the waste that are coming out of it we're not paying the real price of fossil fuels the latest figures i saw is around five trillion dollars a year is the subsidy for fossil fuels across the globe and that's some way bigger than the gdp of japan mm, wow you know, so how is it easy to go from where we are to something new it's really quite hard so but people have been working for a number of years and they had thought well okay we've got to recover things but recycling is a bit like having a pipe and then trying to bend it back you know you're trying to recover a bit but it doesn't ask the question of how this was designed how is it going to be put into use? What's its next use? There's usually no discussion about its next use. And you just try and recover some of the material, perhaps in China, because you send it to them, only they don't want it anymore. They don't want the trash anymore. So that's that's fairly hopeless. And Walter Stahl once pointed out that even if you did 90% recycling on a short-term lifetime good, say it was a can printed out, stamped out, and it was recovered two months later, you can just do the maths on that. The loss is per cycle, say 10%, because you've got 90% recycling. And um, how long before half of that material is lost in the cycling? Well, the, the mathematics are you divide the loss 10% into around 70. We'll do that. Seven cycles, 14 months, and you've lost half the material you started with at 90% recycling. So double that in two years and a little bit, everything is gone. And yet you're thinking, wait, 90% recycling, that's good. It's not good enough. So you need to have a different way of approaching this. And, and um, one is perhaps to redesign the material so it doesn't matter. You could have, please, litter on some of your packaging because it's just going to dissolve into nutrients in the hedgerow if you've got hedges or whatever. We certainly don't want plastic floating into the ocean and staying there for hundreds of years. No. You know, <laughs> Whose great idea was that, really? It's a design problem about the material. Yeah. So the first thing to get is a, a linear economy is exceedingly wasteful. Obviously, we know that. But a circular economy is not just doing more recycling. It's not just a waste management question. Yeah, you've got to waste manage, but that doesn't bring you a circular economy. 
that's by design and intention to make products, components, materials, provide services where you can say what's next, that it acts more like a forest where you're repurposing, re it is recycling away, but it's all nutrients. Everything has another use. Yeah. You know, your tree doesn't recycle its own leaves. If it drops its leaves, that's done through the soil and with all the th thousands of other creatures. So the things are brought into play uh, through the fact that everything is a nutrient for something else. So that's one side of the circular economy. Things have got to be designed to be nutrients, either technical ones where it's stuff we've made or stuff derived from biological material, which will break down. But on the tricky thing of durables, say washing machines and all the rest of it, why are we having to own those? We yeah. want clean clothes. We want cool beer, you know, if it's fridges, or we want to be able to move around if it's vehicles. As soon as you've got a situation where you're able to ask that question intelligently, you can move towards durables, which are put into service by manufacturers are maintained at a high level because the longer it's in service, you get the fees every month. And then you've got an incentive to recover it and put it into another market. So this whole idea of shifting from products to services is a big part of, for significant durables, doing that. I mean, I've got, most people have got their mobile phones and everything, mm. but do they really own those? Very often it's a contract. And then you chip it back in at the end of the contract or whatever, it's not really that you own it i mean i suppose legally you might do it but effectively it's part of apple or other people's um, ecosystem and apple and others are trying to move towards the position where they control the flow they're already doing this thing about recovering the gold from their phones so you're seeing much more a shift towards aided by digital that producer ex responsibility extends and extends, and it might be there are some papers out around this. In the end, total product liability. In other words, whoever makes it acts as if it's their owner and then brings it back to be used, and that will change the way they design it. If they've got an obligation to bring it back, to do something with it, they'll change yeah. the design of how it's done. Yeah. So a circular economy is trying to create nutrients. Everything is food for something else. It's trying to shift towards renewables. That's a written thing in there. You know, you can't do it on the basis of fossil fuels. You've got to move out of that as much as possible. And that you redesign products that suit their duration of use. So if it's like the plastics thing, it has to be replaced by a sort of plastics that does just dissolve after a period of time. It has to be a nutrient for the system. Not just break up on the rocks of any beach you might care to mention yeah. in Australia. The economy, just to, just to finish that, is a stock maintenance concept. That's the way Walter Steinhold puts it. It's like we've got a stock of useful durables which we can put into service, but then know what's going to happen to it afterwards. So we can close the loop intelligently, not just do recycling where you mash everything up and have to chuck a load of energy at it to make something new. So in essence, that's that shift. But there's also in the intermediate things, and one I haven't mentioned is all this sort of repurposing, refurbishment, remanufacturing. Those are all components of an approach which says we want to keep things in the highest value at all times. Anyway, so there we go. That's a yeah. fairly long ramble through uh, it's, my favorite topic. It's good. And again, I really heard a lot there that where you mentioned it's keeping goods in their highest level value for as long as possible, if not circulating ongoing. 
but I heard you mention design a lot. It sounds like mm. the design part is very important to actually kicking yeah, off well, in the right direction. Yeah. If you're going to do people talk about things like design for disassembly, you know, so that it's anticipating when it gets to the end of its first life that you can separate things out and then recover them or, or the contractor that's doing it for you or whatever. You don't want these messy composite things that people go, what am I going to do with that? You know, it's going to cost so much to deal with it. Oh, it's just got to go to landfill or we're going to burn it or something, you know? So design to make, even in IKEA now in, in Europe are doing that. They'll take furniture back. And, and as they take more back, they will be thinking ever more about how they design it so that it can, when it does come back, they can refurbish it before they sell it again. So you've got lots of this design-led approach, which is to say we, we are thinking about the system as a whole and how we can make money out of it. Why wouldn't you design it if you're getting it back? You need to design it so that you can get the most value out of it when you can get it back, or you design it to be continually updated. You know very well and there's a, an offshoot of Philips that sells lighting as a service. You know, the customer doesn't own the light fittings, doesn't meet the electric bill, they just pay a one-off fee to their subsidiary of Philips and they manage the whole, how much lighting do I have on my shopping precinct or whatever. That's perfectly reasonable. Then that um, offshoot of Philips can invest in top quality, low energy filaments, you know, and have them there so that they can be refurbished because it's their source of revenue. You know, as soon as you say, we're not selling it anymore, you get whole set of different business opportunities. Yeah. Not an easy thing to do because we're stuck in this linear world. The thing I'm really taking from the conversation, but is the power of a company thinking that circular approach and breaking away from the linear thought, but also the opportunity that could bring them around sustaining value, creating more value, being able to recreate value and actually deliver so much more for themselves, but also the environment at the same time. Yeah, they could, and, they, and for the customer, you see, this is the other side of it. If the idea is you can get a better quality service or a better quality product, uh, as well as doing the great things in terms of resource use. And obviously, if you've designed it well uh, about the emissions, you know, your, your factory ought to be running on renewables or it's highly uh, eco-efficient in that way. Yeah, uh, it's not easy because the whole world's set up to, to make it, take it and dump it. And the incentives in the system, as I mentioned, are that, oh, well, you know, there's no real value in this because we're not paying the real price of fossil fuels, for instance. You know, so we can, we can just carry on as we are, but we know we can't. So it's not a question of when you'd like to do something or whether you'd like to do something. It's if not this, then what? Yeah. What are you actually proposing? Because Walter Starker, one of the great writers in this, said survival in business is not mandatory. Uh, you know, <laughs> if the world's changing and you don't bother changing, who gives a damn if you go out of business, really? Yeah. Because you 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 were you were shown the writing on the wall, you were able to be pointed to how the world's changing, and you just said, "No, nah, I won't bother." Well, you know, go out of business. You know, yeah. yeah. Have a nice day. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't think there's you know, uh, I think there should be any sympathy for people who don't uh, engage with the potential of change if they're in it for the longer term you know maybe they're a family firm and they want to continue this great if they're just um thinking about their short-term gains as a stockholder next three months a year well 
you know, lots of those businesses are zombie businesses now. They're not really mm. uh, making a great deal of money. They're just servicing their costs. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a very highly important strategic focus for organizations for many reasons, isn't it? In, in Australia, yeah. and I'm sure it's around the world, we've got the Paris Agreement that the government signed to, and it's amazing. I might get you to explain that a little bit. But also many of our major retailers are now upping the target and actually going for things quicker, which is amazing. And so it's coming at a rate of knots for organizations from many directions, not just the legislative part now, but also the you know major hubs of retailers and places like that. And I think you should mention that many employees, the new people coming through into businesses, they don't want to be associated with a business that is uh, you know, trashing the planet, you know, no. they have this, you know, they want to be part of a business that means something to them. And, and if you like, businesses can euthanize themselves by not paying attention to this demand from upcoming and often quite, um, you know, highly educated and quite uh, articulate employees, they want yeah. the business to do good at the same time. Yeah. They're creating a profit, you know, then, and I'm finding, I'm finding a sheer mass of even older employees who are having a shift in mindset and thought evolving at the same time. Are you, are you seeing the same as you deal with organizations? Yeah, well, I've got contacts in Australia and I know that you know, even businesses as disparate as mining companies are seeing if there's anything in it for them. I notice there's a big interest in moving to hydrogen as a fuel for the big mining trucks and, and equipment. You know, it's not there but that i'm surprised how many experiments there are in in thinking about rethinking how we might use energy in mining for instance as one example and yeah. uh, in the in the metals business at the other end of things of the of the mining to production chains there's some new technologies uh, around one's called envirolease it's a canadian company that have got a non-toxic recovery of metals uh, from say e-waste or it, it can apply to mining tailings you know a very non-toxic way of getting additional value out of the material that's in mine waste so there's lots of exciting possibilities for all sorts of businesses with a combination of technology the climate thing coming along what their employees want and what their customers are beginning to demand so yeah. there are many it's coming from many angles it's not just like oh We've got these people who are interested in the environment. I suppose we ought to do something. It's no, the, the, the real checkerboard is changing. Yeah. There's a number of banks I know in Australia too, whereby I think they're saying 2030, they won't be investing in anything that's not circular. So that's oh, a, even bigger than that. The central banks like the Fed Reserve or the Bank of England are saying, we're not going to save your ass necessarily. If you're still in this sort of business, come the next financial crisis. Yeah, it's, you know, we're it's not going to, because at the moment the, the Fed and all the rest of it just makes sure asset values stay high if there's a, a, a crash. They're beginning to say if you're not working in the right direction, or you, what are we saving here? Yeah, Ken, Which what is, have been, that's good in? It, yeah, it's good incentive. Ken, what have been some of your key learnings over the last ten years? Like you've, it must have been such an amazing ten years. But what have been some of the key? It's, been, it's been very interesting. Very, very tiring but in a good way you know it's great to be engaged with it one of the big learnings is that a lot of this depends on understanding metaphor it might sound odd but how do you see the economy people that i've mentioned you know janine benius and the rest of it they take insights from living systems uh, cradle to cradle mcdonough brown nutrient economy blah blah 
they see the world as an analog and an economy as an analog of a living system. And therefore the idea of nutrients and the idea of maintaining capitals, a bit like, you know, you've got to keep the whole body going. It's no point in ignoring the fact that blood doesn't go to your big toe anymore. That's going to be fatal if you don't do something about it. So this is idea of whole system sensibility. And this big argument between eco-effective, which, which involves both having efficiency, but also resilience in the system. There's lots of discussion about the play between the two. That's one big learning. But generally, the idea that people don't switch their metaphors to, to adopt a, a living system perspective when they're thinking through their problems, or rather there are two camps. The, the most obvious camp is the waste management. In other words, the economy is okay, but it's messy. We've got to clean it up a bit. We're not going to change anything else. And there's those who see things, no, no, we have to have an eco-effective system that works at all scales. It's an interplay between resilience and efficiency. You know, you can tell I have to do a lot of these sort of little talks about the different ways of seeing the economy. And I think that's one of the biggest learnings. Those who get it from a, an eco-effective point of view and know the difference between that and eco-efficiency are much more rapidly into, well, what can we do in our business? How can we, how can we work with this? But I have all the sympathy too, because if you're in a system that's incentivized top to bottom to be linear, trying to make your way with a different business model is, is not easy at all. So the other learning is you can only go so far with businesses. You need the system conditions to support change. Like the one question I always ask is why do we tax people? You know, we want more people to be employed, don't we? We want more people to be involved in refurbishing, remanufacturing, recovering stuff, you know, maintaining it. And yet we tax them. So there's incentives are still there to put in AI or capital equipment and, and just keep that throughput going. You know, that, that's a sort of madness in a way. This, this means you just get some business models changing, some resource efficiency, and nobody really goes towards this idea we need to design an economy which is like uh, an ecosystem and we don't get the, the, the shift of taxes to waste and uh, to pay the real price of fossil fuels, for instance. So if you had those two things, if you weren't taxing labor, lots of it could be taken up. And if we were taxing or paying the real price of fossil fuels, we would see people looking at products and services very differently. But that's a huge uh, jump because there are winners and losers. Even if the overall tax take remains the same, there are definite winners and losers for that. Yeah. It's funny so how learnings really. Yeah, and it's you amazing. How, yeah. And it's amazing how measures and systems like that can drive behavior, isn't it? It's absolutely so so large. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of climate change stuff, this has come up the agenda, of course, all the time or, or very rapidly. Circular economy is a big part of meeting those challenges because it uh, something like nearly half, I think, of all the emissions are related to dealing with materials. Um, you know, whether it's in construction, whether it's in uh, in food systems, um, or in the, in the in the in the throwaway products we have, uh, you know, if, or using aluminium, cement, plastics, and all of plastic, that's all of that. So we you can't do it, and this is what the European Green Deal is about. It's not going to do what it's going to do if there wasn't a huge commitment to to moving towards a circular economy within that, which in turn encourages research. And in turn, encourages businesses to go, what would we have to do you know, to, to be in business after all of this? 
Yeah. So I think there's a positive uplift at the moment in we've reached that tipping point about people go, well, of course it's got to be a circular economy. What are you proposing exactly? An economy of nothing very much, you know, because you're getting so many impacts from the climate change and people are so badly off, you know, their livelihoods are ruined through well, never mind droughts and fires in your in your own part of the world, but floods or disruption, plagues, you know, viruses. You know, you have to be able to think, how is the economy going to not just survive, but um, do a good job for people? And this is where you've got all of the politics coming in, I think. People are so disappointed that their children are not going to be better off than they were. Yeah. We don't know what better off means. If it just means more plastic nonsense, that's not very satisfying. The huge gig economy thing where people's uncertainty about work is multiplying. Now, we have to have, if you like, a rethink of a lot of economic relationships to, to bring, you know, even to some people who say to keep democracy alive, because it's certainly under threat by people when they get insecure start asking for authoritarian leadership in a way and don't really care anymore about the science. They just want, well, just take Brexit. It's a great example, isn't it? People mm. wanted that. They couldn't really say why. But it just felt like, oh, I just don't like the system as it is. Maybe if we throw the cards up in the air, it'll come down nice. Which yeah. is, you know, that's about the worst way of deciding anything. Or, yeah. or you know, in the US, and 74 million people still thought Donald Trump was a great idea. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the fact. You can't ignore those people. You have to think of, well, what is it that would make them feel different about how they would want to see politics develop? And I think the economy is often at the heart of all of this. Yeah. So, circular economy could really help, I think, if it gets, if it gets. I think it is getting accepted, but we have to change the rules of the game to make sure it can fall into place quickly. Yeah, well, it's certainly moving at a pace, especially mm. with what was going on in America, where you think that after the election they would have pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Like it's just mind-boggling. You know, that's there was a few sliding door moments. There. I was waiting to see what was going to go on, but it's they're still in there. Yeah. So. <laughs> And the disappointment, of course, is that, for instance, well, Joe Biden didn't get a landslide victory. You know, there's real, in a way, disappointment of that. How much can he really do and who are his real clients anyway? You know, there's a sort of stickiness to a lot of the politics where it's very hard to get new ideas through because if they don't fit in one of two blocks, they get they get really squeezed squeezed yeah. out. Which is why a lot of the time you see a lot of energy in the circular economy movement and it's tied to this idea of building resilience, local, you know, adding value what you've got locally, circulating materials, circulating income locally. There's lots of that going on, which is all very encouraging, you know. Uh, but it still depends on system conditions. For instance, the price of land in Britain, you know, even for farmland, is pretty high. So we've got a real shortage of now of younger people who want to take on agricultural work because they, well, you're never going to be able to afford any land. Renting it's extortionate, and what's the returns anyway? Not good. So I'm a big believer that circular economy needs an input of tools, um, including land resources. You know, like for instance, like food processing, community kitchens, maker labs. There's a whole infrastructure to be built to enable enterprising people to build businesses from the base up through cascading materials through the system. 
That's that other side of a circular economy. It's not all about big businesses. It's about developing enterprises that can add value with what you've got yeah. intelligently. And because digital is there, that can help every bit as much as it can help create monopolies like Facebook. Mm. You know, we've got the two-edged swords. And the last thought for you on this one is that in the 1930s, across the world, particularly attached to the, the Catholic religion, was an idea called distributism which was a some way between a sort of total free market and, and, and communism or socialism on that side, which was to say that the working person, using the terminology of the time, needed access to tools and workshops and places to add value, you know? But because that was an era of pre-digital or pre-communication, it was much more constrained. But now we can do the same, th we can do the same thing, but it can be very connected. There's a business near, near where I was working in Devon called Wasted Apple. It just did online sales, but it took Wasted Apples, you know, apples that weren't suitable for other uses, and made great cider into it and made a business because it could do digital. You just get a box of it delivered to you. So I think there's huge energy in, um, if you like, using resources that might have been thought of as waste and making, making them into something positive. Yeah. It's one I one positive really one positive about this whole COVID side in a way, again, is the shift to digital, like the reduction in travel, the amount that's now being done digitally and circular in a way. It's it's been well, an amazing it, ten it, months or twelve months in that regard. It's been amazing in, in some ways. And we also learned that sometimes you need face to face, you know, in the same room. But we're gonna have more blended things, like in the society that I'm a director of, we're not gonna have a straightforward conferences ever. It's always going to be blended. It might yeah. be in a three centers, you know, it might be in Brisbane, it might be in London, it might be in uh, Mexico City. And there would, the keynotes would be all digital and shared, but there would be local meetings around getting into the detail of the particular issues. And that's fair enough because they're often, often local issues. You know, there's no point in traveling from Australia to Mexico to learn about things that are working well in the in, in a part of Mexico that's got no similarity to what you're experiencing in Australia. Yeah, so I think we'll see many more of this blended operations, yeah, in, in terms of conferencing and sharing, Yeah, which I, th I think is good. Uh, yeah, definitely. I've been involved in a few. It's been great. Ken, yeah. what, what advice would you give to an organisation or leaders within an organisation looking to go, right, we need to do something. We, we need to delve into this and really start working towards that circular economy? First of all, they have to be quite honest with themselves. They've got to do some modeling in a way. How could it work? Because some some people in some businesses which are so inherently linear that a low margin linear business got to do the throughput. If you don't, if you're not dealing in anything that's got much value, it's really tricky. But if you're in the business of solid, durable things that can last there's more hope for you. So, so be honest in the first one. And if you're in the first category, think, am I going to be still in business in a number of years? Will this sort of category die out if it's just too low margin? Uh, if you, your business is more suitable, you can find angles on this one. You've got to do it in a collaborative way with other parts of the supply chain or downstream because it's not an isolated thing. It's it's really based on understanding uh, the ecosystem in which you're working. You know, mining companies perhaps need to think about, well, the metals recovery business. They need to think about, you know, can they do deals with other parts of the, 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 street, the downstream 
elements. I don't know. I mean, uh, but the, the key thing is to realize that this is going to spin off lots of both opportunities, but also severe challenges because some firms don't adjust the incentives, say, for their salespeople. So that instead of selling the, 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 the product or the service which is more circular, they've left the incentives so that selling more of this model, which is just a straightforward sale, uh, is incentivized. So they'll sell the thing they can get the best commission on. You know, it's, it's as subtle as that. You've got to find ways to reward your managers for doing a good job with this. And also to reassure them that they can rework their position so that they've got a role in the new company. If your uh, business was dealing with materials that's coming back, you know, returns, if you're in a, a manufacturing or distribution thing, how do you make that into an advantage? What are we doing with our returns? Do the people who get the returns talk to the people who design the product? I've been in a couple of businesses where they don't. You know, there's returns coming in and the returns people understand the problem with this product, but it's never filters through to the designer because the, on the spreadsheet, it's just, oh, we've got some shrinkage here. You know, this amount of stuff comes back and we just chuck it. We just knock it off. It's part of a cost. Instead of thinking, could this be an opportunity? Yeah. And some people are realizing, I was talking to a Sweden, Swedish firm, that their database about how they refurbish computers and make choices about that refurbishment is a valuable property. Other firms in other parts of the world who deal with refurbishing computer equipment would probably love to have an insight into what decision-making process you make about what you do with different forms of computer in order to get the maximum value out of it. So that their database becomes the thing they sell rather than you know, moving out of just refurbishing computers into helping other businesses do it for a fee to, to, to point them quickly to where the profits can be made. Yeah. So I, I, it's a long road in some senses, but the, the thing I think most businesses are realizing, they can't just carry on as they were. So I think some businesses would say, look, we're in a linear business, we're gonna to have to close down. That's it. We'll get the we'll get the profits out of it. Sell the assets, and we'll have to think of something else. Yeah, uh, they they might just take a whole cold hard look at that and just say that's what we've got to do, which is fair enough because I wouldn't want to be a zeppelin builder in twenty twenty. You know, it was a good business at one time, but yeah. you know, you've got to let go at yeah. some stage. Uh, in in your own country, with a lot of the agricultural stuff, you know, the the rapid increase in uh, interest in synthetic materials, uh, bioreactor materials. You know, this uh, this, um, this license in Singapore now, you may have noticed, is cell-grown or lab-grown meat. Uh, and and the shift towards impossible burgers, you know, plant-based burgers, yeah. and the creation of protein from from the air, in a way. Um, Kivadi is a, a good business that, that does that, using NASA technology from years ago. They can make proteins using these uh, hydrogen-feeding bacteria so you're thinking well say you're running a fish farm business you could get a new source of protein from these companies selling you uh, this protein developed from uh, a bioreactor process your old suppliers who were supplying you with uh, fish food would be thinking oh my goodness we're going to be out of business when these things go to scale because we just can't match the cost yeah profile so staying alert is obviously a thing that all entrepreneurs do they have to stay alert and also to know when it's over. 
you know, don't nobody needs to make a fool of themselves. If the writing is on the wall, read it. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's 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 one of the messages in the way of a circular economy. It's coming. What does it mean to you? And when the rules of the game change around fossil fuel prices or uh, shifts in taxation or regulation, it, you, you've got to be ahead of the game with that one because it's going to take some time to implement. Mm. And there's, like, I don't know, many people will will, will know that, but uh, and the the pace of innovation, and I, I guess this time of COVID has just kicked the pace of companies pivoting and people innovating. It's not going to slow down the coming time as we move more and more towards a more circular economy. Yeah. The question, though, for, for, for businesses and others is who's going to control it? Because imagine you've got this total product liability. Say I've got a specialist equipment. Well, I'm never going to sell it. I get build up market share and its dominance, and I get the materials back. The gray market disappears because I get all of the machines back. And if I've done the right sort of marketing, my offering may be the only one people reach for. And so not only do I control the materials, I've got assets there that might be, you know, people might think that's that's great. Uh, and, and, you know, it's great in terms of adding products and components, materials to asset classes that people would like to invest in, you know? So it's not just stuff that gets thrown away. It's now an asset class that's worth something of itself. So you could then think that the circular economy could make the concentration of power in business even more concentrated if we're not careful because the, one of the guarantees of freedom is that things get distributed and that you can own it. Well, if in the future it's harder to own it, uh, there is a consequence to that because democracy and ownership go very closely together. That's one of the original reasons for democracy was to so that people who owned land in Greece or whatever could have a vote. You know, that was their claim to having a vote. So we vote with our own products. You know, what do we do with them? We, de we decide. Whereas if you're, all the washing machines are on a, a very cheap license, they might red flag you for putting your football boots too often in the machine because they will know what you're doing with the machine because that's part of their maintenance uh, knowledge, you see. So... One has to be careful. You know, electric cars, somebody was mentioning this to me this morning. Well, how are they going to, how's the government going to get tax for that? It's going to be road pricing, isn't it? Mm. So there's going to be a little box in your car that tells you where you're going because the, the government needs to tax you for the distance you've traveled. So, Ken, I think, like, like you're mentioning, Ken, is that something like you think like Singapore is now where there's those tax zones that could come in to help you, you know, collect some taxes with where you drive and where you travel? I'm just wondering what else they might do logically. Uh, there is an interest in uh, reducing accidents, making sure people keep to speed limits, making sure that their vehicle is insured, making sure, you know, all of these sorts of things. So I, I just, I'm slightly con concerned, but these advancing technologies, it might well mean that we don't need to own the car. We can just call it up if those autonomous vehicles ever show up, particularly for older people. They might just go bring a car around. Yeah. Uh, and inevitably, these are all, at the moment, they're, all of these um, is capable. They've got capability in Tesla to track all of it and to, to have information about how it's being driven. So that's already there. I think one of the beauties of the old-fashioned... <laughs> petrol and diesel engine vehicle, particularly older ones, is 
you drove it and, and no information leaked out into uh, you know the, the system yeah, but yeah. I think those days are going because information leaking all the time just look at these things yeah it's an it's a new it's 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 an evolving world we're coming into but it's it's for businesses I guess it's the message is we've got to be on our toes and we've got to be evolving quickly because there's a real risk that we get left behind right now yeah. And are you using the data that your product can generate, if it's a product or a service, to really improve your business? Because you should be able to tap many richer flows of information from customers to help you with decision making. The, yeah. the days of old, oh, just sell it and forget it. Hmm. I think they're, they're, they're limited. Yeah. Boy, hasn't the digital age come on at a good time for us for circular economy? In a way, yes. And that question I asked about who controls it and with what safeguards. I would want very good safeguards if I'm a user of, say, washing machines, as I discussed. I don't want them to know some things about how I use my washing machine, or I don't want to be red flagged because I use it more than four times uh, a week uh, when it's expected to be used three times a week. You know, these subtle judgments can be made by companies that think, well, they're, they're using the machine up a lot more than average. We won't give them the same quality contract next time they come around to renew we'll edge it up a bit. Yeah. So that I want really protections to say, look, I'm using it, but how I use it, except for essential maintenance questions, is my business and you can't have that info. And you certainly can't red flag me uh, because I overloaded it twice because I put the whole, you know, X, Y, and Z into it. Yeah. You know, that level of interference, because we're humans, we just, we don't do things to match an algorithm. No. No, we are human. I don't think we ever should in that, in that way. We're humans, you know. It's yeah. at the moment it's too hard. You know, say you're a delivery driver, they're monitored all the time. When did why did you stop here? Why did you only do four deliveries in the hour instead of six? You know, in in the older days, maybe the guy wants a cigarette. He wants to stop, yeah. have a cigarette, maybe ring his girlfriend, just chill out a moment because it's stressful. Now the machines will will monitor what he's doing. Yeah. And no doubt comment on it. Oh, do you need some support in maintaining your productivity levels? <laughs> you know, there's, who are we working for in the end? And so uh, circular economy has a, a double-edged sword if more and more significant durables become sold, uh, sold as services rather than products. Yeah, and it seems that's, that's a common path right now. Yeah. Ken, what, what is something you've learned recently that you didn't know before? What's been a recent well, I think insight? The insight had? from Anne Pettifor, she's an economist, originally South African. She says you can't fix the materials economy unless you fix the financial system. And it, it needs a bit of thought about that, but what's driving the activity in the economy? If there's a huge, uh, well, we know that there's huge private debt bubbles. If we know that there are stock buybacks, if we know there's a lot of short-termism in terms of returns. If in a way that um, the cost of living for everyday people is really squeezed because their housing costs are really high or they've got gig work and they can't get, uh, you know, they can't get a balanced lifestyle you might well say, well, that's down to the structure of the financial system. Why isn't more? investment going into uh, circular economy or climate related stuff there's a lot to do so that's why her, her comment about you can't fix the material system without fixing the financial one 
is quite resonant, I think, that needs more exploration. Yeah, that's that's too true. Well, Ken, I want to thank you. Thank you for everything you've done and everything you continue to do to help us create a better future. Like it's certainly been an amazing ride for 10 years. And like you've mentioned, it's going to be an amazing ride ahead. So thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your invite, Brad. Have a good one. Cheers, Ken. My key takeaways from this episode with Mr. Ken Webster were design with the circular economy in mind, strategically plan to sustain value in your products in a circular economy rather than the traditional linear make, use, dispose approach. Measure and incentivize to drive the right behaviors. The leading companies in the new circular economy will evolve by designing products to sustain value and easily circulate. This requires an extended value stream approach to design considering raw material supply, manufacture, sales, use, maintenance, and recovery through the remanufacture or redistribution. This is gonna be a different approach for many organizations some have already been very successful with this. We have been in a period of dramatic change and we will continue to experience change as we move further and further towards a circular economy. New organisations will arise through this time. Organisations will pivot, change and, ex- and succeed and others won't. This is an exciting time to be in business and doing great things for our planet. The measures and systems our governments, financial organisations, our organisations, we put on our people and focus on and deploy will drive behaviour. The behaviours these systems and measures create will either help or hinder our success into the future as we move forward. It is important that we take the time to consider the impacts of our existing measures and systems on human behaviour and the changes that we need to make into the future and ensure that they are positive behavioural changes as we do evolve. Thanks again Ken, I really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate your time. Bye for now.